you live in fear of a complaint? Do you dread making a mistake or getting something wrong? No one goes to work expecting to fail and no one ever likes to be wrong or receive a complaint. But making mistakes is normal. After all, no one has a 100% success rate and receiving complaints from patients and clients could be seen to be an occupational hazard. We know this. So why do we find it so hard to cope when it happens? And it will. That's why we've put together a series of You Are Not A Frog podcasts on complaints and how to survive them. Going through a complaint or investigation is one of the most stressful things that can happen in your career. And I've seen firsthand the anxiety and emotional turmoil it can cause. And I know what it's like to berate myself when I inevitably fail. But it's because we care that we find this aspect of our professional practice so difficult. But what if there's a better way of handling things? What if we could learn to view the whole complaints process as just another part of our professional practice and learn the skills we need to manage ourselves, our colleagues and our patients in an empathetic and compassionate way throughout? In this episode, we've got a panel of experts in to answer some of your questions. We talk about what to do if you suspect that a patient just has it in for you and is making a malicious complaint how to recognise what's actually going on for them so that you can avoid those defensive and angry responses to complaints that just don't seem fair. We also talk about how you can cope as a team with the extra complaints that have come in as a result of the pandemic and the associated fallout, as well as discussing about how to have a constructive conversation and support a trainee or colleague who has received a complaint. So listen, if you want to understand how complaints are often about emotions rather than facts. Listen, if you want to learn how to deal with complaints that aren't fair and find out how you can best approach conversations between trainees and supervisors when a trainee receives their first complaint. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog, life hacks for doctors and other busy professionals who want to beat burnout and work happier. I'm Dr. Rachel Morris. I'm a GP turned coach, speaker and specialist in teaching resilience. And I'm interested in how we can wake up and be excited about going to work no matter what. I've had 20 years of experience working in the NHS and I know what it's like to feel overwhelmed, worried about making a mistake and one crisis away from not coping. Even before the coronavirus crisis, we were facing unprecedented levels of burnout. We have been described as frogs in a pan of slowly boiling water, working harder and longer. And the heat has been turned up so slowly that we hardly noticed the extra long days becoming the norm and have got used to the low-grade feelings of stress and exhaustion. Let's face it, frogs generally only have two options. Stay in the pan and be boiled alive or jump out of the pan and leave. But you are not a frog. And that's where this podcast comes in. You have many more options than you think you do. It is possible to be master of your destiny and to craft your work and life so that you can thrive even in the most difficult of circumstances. And if you're happier at work, you will simply do a better job. In this podcast, I'll be inviting you inside the minds of friends, colleagues and experts, all who have an interesting take on this, so that together we can take back control and thrive, not just survive, in our work and our lives and love what we do again. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? 
Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours. Then it's time to get your life back and that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60-minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash get your life back. So welcome to the final episode in our series on complaints and how to survive them. And this is a very special episode. This is a question and answer session. So we uh, don't know exactly what we're going to be talking about, but I have a panel of expert guests with me. So welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Let me just introduce you all. So firstly, we have an old friend, Dr. Sarah Coop. She's a GP by background. She's a senior, senior medical educator at Medical Protection Annual probably recognize her from episode one of this series so welcome Sarah. Thanks very much Rachel nice to be back thank you. And we've also got George Wright now George is a dentist and a dental legal consultant and a senior dental educator at Dental Protection so really good to have you with us George. Good morning. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Morning. And we also have, um, all the way from New Zealand, Dr. Samantha King. She's a practicing GP. She's also a medico-legal consultant and educator at MPS New Zealand. So, Sam, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. And last but definitely not least, we have Dr. Andrew Tresseder. And Andrew is a Somerset CCG clinical lead for medicines management and pastoral care. He's a GP and a GP appraiser and works also for NHS Practitioner Health, where he's the clinical lead for the Southwest region, um, amongst lots of other things. So welcome, Andrew. Thanks very much, Rachel. Great to join you all. So we've we've got a list of questions, um, sort of commonly asked questions, people questions that people have been asking us throughout the, the complaint series. And so I'd like to start off and kick off with this one. And I think this is a, a really, really common uh, question and common thing that everyone has worried about at some point or another. What should I say to a patient or a client when they wish to make a complaint? I'm worried that it could make the situation worse. So how do you respond in that moment when someone tells you they wish to make a complaint. Firstly, Sarah, can I can I ask you that? Yeah, I think it's a really good question, isn't it? Because how we respond in that first moment can probably shape how the complaint then um, develops, I suppose. So there's a real opportunity in that first moment to, I suppose, nip, nip it in the bud in some ways and um, smooth things over with that conversation with the patient or actually respond in an unconstructive way or a destructive way that actually could lead to it escalating. So I think, and I'm interested to know what George says from a dental perspective um, as, as well, but I think in, in medicine, the, the first thing to do is to take it seriously, to really listen to the patient, to acknowledge that they have something, something's happened that's, that they're unhappy about and hear what it is. So hear it out before then um, making any kind of response in terms of, of your explanation for things. I think patients will take it further if they feel they haven't been listened to, if they feel that there's been excuses made, if they feel that their feelings aren't acknowledged. So I think that's the first thing that we need to do is really listen to it and actually thank them for the feedback, thank them for the opportunity to, to respond to it so that we can learn from, from that. 
Um, that's my first initial thing. There's more I could say, but George, I'd just be interested to know from a dental perspective what, what your thoughts are. Yeah, I, I, I agree with everything you said there, Sarah. I think um, it, it really is challenging when you are the rabbit in the headlights. I think the first thing I'd say is is perhaps don't focus too much on that worry about making it making it worse. Sometimes we overburden ourselves in that way, and that can, can actually make the, the situation more challenging. Um, definitely saying nothing or that silence is is worse than probably anything you could say. Um, and and whilst I totally agree with Sarah that nipping things in the bud is is you know a really good aim to have, don't don't be too hard on yourself if you don't nip it in the bud. You know, complaints unfortunately are a fact of life. And we all have processes and policies in place to deal with these things. So if you're in that position and you haven't been able to resolve it. Don't be afraid to signpost the patient to the practice complaints policy or uh, the hospital complaints policy and, and you know, reassure them that you, you have the process in place and you'll be happy to, to escalate it in, a, in an appropriate way. Um, I, I suppose the final thing to say from me is, is say what comes naturally. We're all, you know, caring healthcare professionals. So it's, it's highly unlikely we're going to say something really unsympathetic to the patient. So maybe don't worry too much about what you should be saying because you, you, you can find yourself tripping yourself up there. The, the classic we have is that we, we're often contacted by colleagues that worry that saying sorry is going to make the situation worse or, or they might be in trouble with their indemnity provider for saying sorry so early on. I mean, these are myths that we work very hard to bust. Just, just say what comes naturally to the patient and you'll probably surprise yourself how quickly you can de-escalate the situation. Is it true that, that a lot of patients, they are just looking for a bit of an apology and an, and an acknowledgement? And if that has happened, then actually they're probably less likely to, to really go after you. Is that your experience? Yeah, totally. I think I think we worry too much that patients want someone's head on the block and they want someone to blame. Um, whereas actually, if you if you think about it from whenever you've been a patient, often all you want, you're absolutely right, is an acknowledgement that your what your concerns or your your um, feelings about the way you've been treated have been understood and recognised. And absolutely, an apology can go a huge way to de-escalating the situation. And and very often, that's the end of it. Mm. What do you think, Sam? I think that for GPs in particular, and I'm assuming for dentists, that because you've got this longitudinal relationship, you've, you've got a lot of credits in the bank anyway. So if you apologise, the patients are far more likely just to, to let it go and to feel satisfied. I think that I agree with George that often we're too scared about what we're going to say, particularly the sorry. Mm-hmm. I think my reflection is that if a patient tells you that they're going to make a complaint, my instinct, and I think a lot of people's instinct is, okay, what can I say now that's going to make them not not make that complaint? And so initially you become a lot more defensive. And the problem is when you're then feeling defensive on the back foot, you can't quite react in the manner that that, that you would want to. I mean, Andrew, when, when you've sort of seen this with, with people, what advice would you give them to try and manage their own emotions right in that moment? Thank you. Um, that's a really good question. So complaints, uh, I see, are not about facts because outcomes can be good or less good. Outcomes can be adverse. And all practitioners are trying hard. They're caring and they're investing in good outcomes. In a way, we're sort of professionally investing our love in, in doing our job well. Um, 
complaints are not about facts. They're about feelings. It's about feelings when things haven't gone so well. Uh, and it might be something very minor or it might be something very, very major. And so I think an understanding of how to, to work through the feelings, both for the patient and for the practitioner, can be quite helpful. Yeah. And I think that whole sort of working through your feelings, it, it, you can be like, like George says, this rabbit in a headlight, sort of just like, oh, my goodness, what, what, what do I do? I think sort of sometimes taking a pause can be quite helpful, can't it? And not, not responding immediately. But I just wanted to pick up on George's point about pointing them to the, the policies and the procedures. And this is the way you can do it. And, and let me explain it to you. We've had another question that says, do I need to display my complaints policy? And I'm worried it might encourage patients to complain. So if we actually tell them about the complaints process and what the next step is and what they can do, will that encourage people or will that just reassure people? I'll jump in there if I may, Rachel. I think um, absolutely reassures them. It, it may encourage them insofar as it might make the route to making complaints um, more straightforward for them. But actually, I think the easier you can make it for a patient's complaint, um, the more likely you are to resolve that complaint early. And you know, we we see in a number of cases where the the, the, the barriers are put up to making a complaint and actually the, the complaint escalates to the patient complaining about the complaints process rather than the initial catalyst for the complaint. Um, and if I can just talk from personal experience very briefly, I received a complaint to our regulators, to the General Dental Council, a number of years back, and the patient didn't complain to the practice. They went straight to the regulator. Now, reflecting back on that, what I would do if I had a similar situation tomorrow is make sure the complaints policy was on, you know, a neon piece of paper with red flashing lights around it, because the patient would have seen the first protocols, the practice, and they would have been listened to and they'd have got the answers that they wanted. And hopefully we could have avoided all that stress of the escalated process. So for that reason, I advocate very strongly for, for having that policy on display, making sure all the staff know about it and making sure that patients are aware of it if and when they want to complain. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. I'd never thought of that. Actually, it can help you avoid inappropriate es escalation. Andrew, you were going to say something. I love what George's phrase being listened to, because the reason that we make a complaint and the reason we want to be taken seriously is because we want to be heard. We want to tell our story. Uh, and in, in occasional serious issues then where there are grave consequences and grave financial issues then then maybe we're out for more than that but in the i would guess in the great majority of complaints we want to be heard we want an apology we want to understand that there's been learning uh, and, and that's what matters so andrew I, we've got the next question which i think ties in very well with that so not all complaints are due to clinicians making errors often patients don't want to hear that it was bad luck just happened to them so they're angry and like you said before it's about their emotion it's about feeling it's not fair why has it happened to me so how how do we deal with that so because we we did have sort of um, one comment from one of the podcast listeners that how it's fair enough dealing with a complaint where there has been a mistake and something has happened, but actually if it's not your fault and the patient is just cross about something, um, maybe there's been a misunderstanding or maybe they just don't like what has happened to them. How do we how do we not be defensive? How do we how do we cope with that? Thank you um, very much, Rachel. Let's. It's a challenge on two levels. I think it requires 
our clinical skills of of working with colleagues and with working with patients and people of managing people and one of the things that all practitioners do is they manage behavioral change uh, what do I mean by that? Um, so if somebody um, presents to me as a GP and they're smoking 30 a day, I might just give smoking cessation advice, you know, stop smoking, it would be a good idea. Um, if I just say that as soon as they come into the room because I smell smoke on them, I think I've got about a 0% chance of, of success and about a 90% chance of, of, uh, of a complaint. Um, and so we have to go through what's called the Solihull Triangle of, of firstly, we have to build rapport Secondly, a connection and a conversation, and then we can move on to behavioral management. So we have to always use our professionalism to stay calm, to build that rapport, to build that connection, to make sure there is a dialogue happening, and then we can move to helping guide the person forwards. What are we guiding them through? And I think perhaps Sam might like to speak at this point because we can come back to that. Yeah, I always tell our members to let the facts speak for themselves. That you often, I think, our natural response is to feel defensive. But if you think about it, if you just give them the facts of what happened, but keep your tone warm, the tone is really important when it comes to responding to people. I think there's a big difference by kind of with saying, you know, what's wrong with you to, gosh, what's wrong with you? And um, if we keep a warm, friendly tone and keep our body language um, reflecting our tone, I think that really helps. I think that the patients really do. I think a number of um, my colleagues here have said similar things. The, the patients want to feel acknowledged and heard because I think we all do. So first up, if you come out with acknowledging how they feel and apologise for what you can, and I'm not saying you should apologise for doing something that you didn't do, Um it's about saying, you know, you could even say, I'm sorry that this has happened to you. And this helps their emotions to settle. And I think when their emotions settle, they're better able to listen to the facts in a more reasonable frame of mind. I think it's quite hard for us, too, to keep our language neutral uh, because doctors aren't used to dealing with these sorts of tense situations. And uh, But it is a skill that you can learn. And often the best way um, I I can suggest is before you meet with a patient, if you can, if you write it out and get it clear in your head and get your language sorted, it means that when you come to talking with them, it's easier to keep your tone, your body language warm and friendly, and the words you're saying will match that. And I, I think that goes a long way to taking the heat out of it for complainants. Mm. Sarah? Yeah, I agree with, with what Andrew and Sam have said. I think it's so important to build that connection with patients before going into any sort of explanation yourself, but also the way that you talk to them, if you're conveying sincerity, if you're conveying empathy through your tone, through your non-verbals, that really demonstrates to the, to the patient that you're taking them seriously. And I think when people are unhappy with something, even if it was um, something that was actually unpreventable. So I think we know from research that 40 to 50% of adverse outcomes were probably not preventable. They occur because of recognised complications of treatment, because of um, perhaps unforeseen medication reactions. And those things, we couldn't have predicted it. It isn't a negligence, it isn't someone's mistake, but it still happened to them. And therefore their experience isn't isn't optimal that something has, has gone on that actually they are struggling with or they're suffering as a result so conveying to that patient that you are sorry as Sam said that this has happened to them can go a long way just to building that human connection mm, 
And uh, hearing the whole story from their point of view is so important because, as 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 Sam says, the facts are important, but their their connection of how the facts work and what they have told themselves uh, is is so important. Um, I'm just thinking of um, bereavement visits that I would do as a GP in order to uh, ensure that the new patient, the loved one who has lost their loved one, uh, is able to transit grief effectively, the phases of grief. And I would always explain to them the facts uh, and also then say, and you will meet two families. You will meet the what-ifs and the if-onlys. What if we'd stayed in Lancashire rather than moving to Somerset? If only he'd stopped smoking five years ago. What if I'd fed him more vegetables? If, if only she'd done so-and-so. And from the absent relative, if only I'd visited more frequently. What if the doctor's so-and-so, if only the nurse is such and such? What if they'd given this medication instead of that medication? What if they'd taken him to hospital sooner? If only I'd visited more frequently. And I would say to people, you will meet the what-ifs and if-onlys as part of the grieving process. When you meet them, as we meet them every moment of every day because we are reflective beings, um, you won't dismiss them because they've got emotion attached. Normally, they just dissipate. But when they have high emotion attached in the fa- in, as we're transiting grief and loss, um, they can start to circle and cycle and pester and fester and turn to poison which we either hold inside as guilt or we spit out as, as, as anger at somebody else. So if you meet either of the what-ifs of the only, the if-onlys, these families, just tell them to push off. That's interesting. This whole what-ifs and if-only, presumably, Andrew, you're not saying tell the family to push off. You're saying tell, no, no, the, no, no, tell no. the what-ifs and if-onlys to push off. <laughs> Absolutely. Because otherwise, a, a grieving relative can p- find themselves plagued for days, weeks yeah. and months by thoughts going round and round and round in their minds. Uh, and and we, we find it difficult to escape that cycle. And it's not actually the thoughts that are the problem. It's the unresolved pain, hurt, loss mm. or distress. Yeah. And that's really interesting you're saying that, Andrew, because it's it's these thoughts, isn't it, that's causing us distress. And I know Sarah and I were talking about the thoughts and the stories that we have in our minds. And I think that's one of the problems when we're dealing with complaints um, and we're thinking to ourselves, it's not my fault. This is really unfair. How, how dare you start to insinuate it's my fault? And then we project it to the future. Oh, my goodness, I can see this complaint running and I can see it going to the GMC and blah, blah. And these might all be going around in our head while the patient is just telling us about about it so how do we avoid that leaking out because I know Sam's saying you know it's all about tone and body language and that's fair enough but if you've got these thoughts going around your head they do just leak out and I think we do find it really difficult to have an open conversation um, without being without being defensive I mean what advice would you give people about how not to be defensive Sarah or perhaps how to change the stories and all that sort of thing yeah, so in, in the work that I've done, um, coaching doctors who have perhaps had a complaint um, before I joined medical protection would work with doctors in difficulty who'd perhaps been referred to the GMC. And I'm sure Sam and George and, and Andrew have had similar um, experience as well of, of working with doctors on a one dentist on a one-to-one. But I think a lot of it is just recognising that our, our normal sort of automatic response or reaction is to defend ourselves, isn't it, against a threat. And I think often what I would try and help someone to do is to bring 
that meaning that they're making out of what's happened into the light. Because as you say, often it's going on in the back of our minds, often kind of unconsciously, and we're not really aware of that meaning that we're making. So they've had an experience, understandably, you know, feel um, scared about what the implications could be. But it's recognising actually, what am I telling myself? And how is this helping me? How is that then affecting my feelings? And then that's affecting my behaviour. So there's something about just recognising that pattern and thinking if I want to be feeling and doing something different, I need to go back to what I'm telling myself. I have a strange analogy that I'd just like to share with you here. It's about snow globes. So you maybe know there's little um, snow globes that you can shake up and snow falls down and and it, it sort of falls into a scene. And I would sometimes use this analogy, whether it's helpful or not, I don't know, but I'll share it with you. So imagining that the other person, whether that's the patient, um, has a snow globe and you have one as well. And when the patient is angry or upset, it's like their snow globe is shaken up so that the snow is their feelings. Um, the situation or their position is the scene inside the snow globe. So when they're upset and angry, they've shaken up the snow globe. You can't see really clearly what's going on for them. You can't see the the issue. The thing is, if you shake your own snow globe up, you can't see out. You know, it, it's like no no help at all because you're both completely um, neither can see in, neither can see out. So there's something about just holding your snow globe to let the snow settle by managing your own sort of feelings and that's often by managing the meaning that you're making to the situation so that you can then see out of your snow globe to com- convey that sincerity that empathy to the other person so that their snow settles and then they can um by empathizing and by sort of asking questions to understand what's going on and then once their emotion is settled they can see um more clearly as to what's going on for you so there's something about just managing and holding yourself which is really tricky and it takes time to help someone sort of do that but I guess so that you can see clearly what the situation is for the person before you try and explain your position. I don't know whether that's helpful. I'm not pretty explained it brilliantly. It's easy with a visual prop, I think. But there's something about just about recognising the feelings and how often we respond in kind. We often tend to respond and by matching the other person's feelings, perhaps rather than trying to hold our own state and manage our state. And that is easier said than done. Yeah, I love that analogy of a snow globe because we all know that actually you can't just say to snow globe, oh, it's fine now. It actually takes time for that snow to settle yeah. and realize, recognizing ourselves, it's going to take time for the snow to settle. So it's probably not the time to have a very deep conversation about whose fault it was or what actually happened. It's, now's the time just to listen and for empathy and, and wait till the, the, you know, it might take days or weeks for the, for the globe to settle properly. Andrew, you... Sorry, I was going to say, we can make assumptions about what's in the other person's snow globe. Totally. And we can answer thinking that we know what the problem is and what they need to hear. And we need to ask, so I've just got five quick A's. Sorry, I've just um, acknowledged, apologise, then ask questions before you answer and then act. So I think there's five A's that can be really helpful to do it in that order. Often we come in with our answers first before we actually even ask the person what, what is going on and perhaps what they want to have happen. But yeah, sorry, just to chip in with that. That's really helpful. The, the five A's, we will list those in the show notes for people. Andrew? I'm just picking up on what both Sam and Sarah have said. So Sam said a calm, friendly manner. And Sarah, uh, I love the snow globe analogy, but just before you mentioned that, you use the word threat. And that's really interesting because any threat sets off our mammalian body autonomic nervous system. And the first thing that happens is that we may get parasympathetic freeze as we go through shock and denial. And shock is the first thing that happens. And then we go on to fight and flight. And this is not what 
you and I as health professionals, as highly trained people are doing. This is what our mammalian body is doing under the surface because we feel threatened. And the fight and flight mechanism involves adrenaline, it involves fear, it involves um, raised blood pressure, um, pulse going faster, sweaty hands, dry mouth. And so our challenge is to allow ourselves or to take control of ourselves before we can, and our own snow globe, before we can help the other, the other person, the patient with their snow globe. So one might want to try feet flat on the floor, spine comfortable, and slow down your breathing, nice open posture, and just ensure that whatever the bad news you're hearing or the difficulties or or, or the tragic lament that the patient is sharing with you of, of, of what has happened, because sometimes some dreadful things may have happened for people in their lives uh, or and they wish to complain. We take control, we calm ourselves right down, to slow, regular, rhythmic, abdominal breaths. And in that situation, we can listen clearly, we have peripheral vision, we hear everything that's going on, and we understand the emotional nuances of what the patient is trying to say. Whereas if we're a bit frightened, we're worried about ourselves and and, and we're starting to breathe rapidly and chaotically in upper chest, which is what we do in sympathetic and our speech starts getting fast and we start feeling defensive and we start trying to answer the questions. What happens is we miss all the big picture and we miss everything that the patient's trying to say because they can't, we we can't hear it. We've missed it. Hmm. Thank you. So really important to just stop ground ourselves try and get us back out of our sympathetic zones into our um our, our human thinking brains i think a, a good book that i found helpful about um doing this is the, the chimp paradox by dr steve peterson he talks about this this reaction being you're in a chimp now the problem is there are some patients uh, i think or, or, or i think many of us think who are trying to be malicious or we feel that they're trying to be malicious i mean george do you think that patients do come at us maliciously and make malicious complaints i mean it, it certainly happens but i don't think it happens anywhere near to the extent that we we often think it does um you know we we do see malicious complaints and we see we see complaints where um patients um have have sinister motives um you know perhaps for instance they're they're after um compensation but they, they don't want to come out and say that i think it's it's really important to keep perspective not just relating to in relation to malicious complaints but complaints in general you know you need to remember that you see hundreds and hundreds of patients and we're talking in this podcast in the series about the very vast minority of patients here um, and and for every patient that's unhappy you will have hundreds of happy patients I think the bottom line for me is that we don't go to work to experience or suffer abuse from our patients or the relatives of our patients. So if you do find yourself in the the real difficult backed into a corner situation where you are being threatened um, and and you feel uh, the patient is is being abusive, then don't be afraid to to call time and, and get out of that situation. Um, you know, I, I think you know to, to go back to Sarah's snow globe analogy, there can be situations where no amount of time in that moment is going to allow the snow to settle, um, and you're going to just have to to leave it for a little bit longer and come back to it when you're in a better mindset. Um, 
but yes, they do make malicious complaints. And and a good tool for that is is sharing the complaint with your with your your friends, your family, your your colleagues. Now, of course, you need to be mindful of patient confidentiality. But sometimes we take that too far and we don't think that we can tell our husbands, our wives, our children about the fact we've had a complaint or that we are feeling under pressure at work because we're dealing with a complaint. And you can have all sorts of conversations with with these loved ones without divulging patient confidences. And I think sometimes sharing that burden, particularly when it's a malicious complaint, because you know these can go on and on. And, and sometimes you get to, you know, the, the sixth time that you've responded to a patient and you just have to sometimes get to the point and say, look, we're not we're not getting anywhere here. And sometimes asking the patient, what do they want? You know, rather than skirting around the subject, just fronting it out. What is it you're looking for out of this complaint? You know, we've answered all your questions. We've we've promised to put in place the systems changes, uh, you know, all, all the rest of it. What is it now? that is preventing us from drawing a line under your concerns. Um, and sometimes that can just help get it over that line. It's very frustrating though, isn't it? To these, these sort of, when patients are either after something or they're just got it in for you. And we really worry that, that, that other people won't recognise that that's the case. Do you think that the regulators can recognise when the complaints are malicious? And do the defence unions really, really recognise it? Yeah, I, th- I think absolutely. You have to remember that whilst I've just said it's very rare for for clinicians to have complaints, it is our bread and butter. You know, this is this is like your patients coming in and asking you about the most common procedure or condition that that you might deal with, um, and it, you very quickly develop that sense of when a patient is is pursuing ulterior motives or or they're being malicious in their approach and I I think to be fair to the regulators I think they do see that Um, I think it is taken into consideration you know and and you you all all you have to do is share your responses you know particularly if you've you've got good records of the conversations that you've had and you've kept records of any letters and correspondence it, it you know any any person in the field can take a look at those and say well these are all very reasonable ways of managing the situation and we've now got to the stage where the patient isn't being isn't being reasonable so to your to your question rachel yes i think i think it is recognized um but also just to drive that point home it is very rare it does happen and and unfortunately the consequences when it happens can be quite significant it can really take its toll on someone it can really overwhelm you and and become the, the you know the sole focus of your thoughts in work outside of work um so that that concept of getting that support around you when you come across these rare patients is really important i get it you're pushed for time and with over 200 episodes how do you know which is going to be the one that lifts you out of the saucepan and back to thriving at work Never fear, the You Are Not A Frog podcast quiz is here. Find out if you're a super squirrel, brilliant badger or mighty mole and I'll send you a personalised playlist with the top five episodes that will make the biggest difference to you. Discover your top of the hops, top five episodes, sorry, and leap into your happiest thriving self again. Just go to youarenotafrog.com slash quiz. That's really hard, isn't it? Is there anything a, a doctor or a dentist or, or guess, guess anybody who's in a profession where there's a sort of very malicious complaint, is there anything that you can do to sort of protect yourself from, from that patient? Because like we can't, 
like it's what you really want to do is like I'll sue you back for being for being mean and I'll I'll get you back because you then just because you feel so helpless you then start lashing out like, what, what would you suggest Andrew it took me about 15 years or 20 years in practice to realize um, that although I wanted to help everyone and wanted to make everyone better because that's why I went into medicine, that actually there may be 1% or 1.5% of patients who um, not only resisted that, but gave me a hard time. And it, it, it was a huge relief of that burden when I realized that the same people I understood in, 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 in the time where I worked actually give people in the bank a hard time and people in the supermarket a hard time, people at the garage a hard time, and quite possibly their, their husbands or their wives a hard time. So I think there's, there's something about recognizing that there are sometimes um, difficulties. I, I think having said that, and that's not to that, please don't think that's to try and trivialise people and stigmatise them. Firstly, anger may actually cover anxiety. Uh, and we should always remember that. And, and secondly, um, I love something from South American wisdom, some Toltec wisdom, which are the, the five agreements. And number one is something that we all do as professionals. Be impeccable with your words. Say what you mean. Mean what you say. Don't say anything else. That's quite easy. Number two, take nothing personally. <sighs> That's really difficult sometimes, particularly when we've invested a lot in our relationship and, and, and spent a lot of time or effort. Number three, don't make assumptions. Make no assumptions. Um, and of course, we all are guilty of that at times. Uh, number four is, is easy as a professional. Always do your best. That's what we do. And number five is interesting. Um, what's going on behind what's going on? Be sceptical, but learn to listen. So always listen, but ask yourself, what's what's actually going on? What am I hearing, but what am I not hearing? And what's the story happening for this person behind what's going on? So, so that challenge of being able to look at yourself and reflect in action uh, is is. It's, it's really quite a challenge as a professional because we're busy doing the day job, let alone trying to think about it uh, and trying to manage our own reactions. But by by having some understanding of framework like that, it can help. I love that framework. And yes, we'll, we'll, we'll get that off you and put that in the show notes, Andrew. Thank you. And I think it's a professional skill that we need to develop, isn't it? This whole depersonalizing things and working out what's going on behind the thing. I think one of the um, steps in the interest-based relational approach to negotiation by um, the book, getting to yes is first of all separate the person from the problem you've got this person and there is this issue that this mistake might have been made or that there has this complaint been made but it just feels so personal and particularly when you feel there is a perhaps a malicious element to it I mean Sam as a medical legal consultant how do you advise your clients to deal with it when when you suspect there is something malicious going on it is really difficult, of course, when people feel that it is vexatious, that there's nothing, no basis to it. And so part of my job is to talk to our members to give them a perspective, to be able to say, yes, I recognise that this is a vexatious complaint, that when I've looked at your clinical notes, I don't see that you've done anything particularly wrong. And that, that provides huge reassurance because often – you know, when we get a complaint, it's hard for us to work that out. Have I done something wrong? Have I really, you know, messed this up? Or, or is it that everything's fine and, and this is a, just a vexatious complaint? So often just getting someone to support you and to identify it for you, I think, is really helpful. I think the other thing that we do too is to, if we need to, we would step in with um, 
a lawyer. So the lawyer comes between the doctor and the complainant. And uh, the other thing we do sometimes is to encourage the complainant to go to the regulator or to go to the ombudsman. We have a, an HDC system in New Zealand, but to go to your equivalent of the ombudsman. And that ombudsman then becomes the intermediary between the vexatious patient and the doctor. And we don't, obviously, we don't encourage that very often, but in, in the vexatious patient situation, I think that's actually helpful. I don't know whether, George, you would you would do that for your members? Yeah, and, and a, a thought that's just come to my mind there as you as you were talking, Sam, is also the fact that um, we 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 take these complaints home with us a lot. And we I think as clinicians, we want to bring a conclusion to a complaint as quickly as possible. And we think that means, you know, making yourself really available to that complainant. And I have occasionally helped colleagues where they've given the patient their personal mobile number or their personal email address. And then if you pick up one of these malicious complainants, it becomes so embedded within your personal life as well that the problem just escalates and escalates. So having that separation, there's a difference between you know, giving the patient your full attention and you know, taking the complaint seriously, but also keeping a distinction between your personal and private life and having the confidence to, you know, actually, if you want to respond to my email, which was sent in office hours on a Friday and you're going to email me on a Saturday morning, well, you will be waiting until at least Monday, if not later, uh, to, to get a response. And the, the other point I'd make is, is don't get drawn into ping pong emails with patients. And that's where you can really encourage these malicious complainants because what they're looking for often is, you know, when it's a truly malicious complainant, notwithstanding everything Andrew said about the fact, which I totally agree with, it can be covering up other anxieties and problems underneath. But if you have a truly malicious complainant, then pinging off an email as soon as they've responded, they're sat waiting for it. And you're just playing the game. So, you know, I will occasionally, if I'm contacted by one of our members, I will encourage them to give it 48 hours to let the situation just slow down a bit. And that can just help to, to move things in the right direction. But the final point I'd make, and this is, this is kind of going back to your earlier question, Rachel, about the blame game, is it sometimes there's a shift in mindset necessary away from we're not here to win complaints. That's not the aim of the game. The aim of the game is to resolve complaints. And there is a subtle difference between those two concepts. And if you can get your head around that, when you're faced with those difficult patients and you actually think, well, I'm not here to win a battle. I'm just here to resolve it, just to close that door so that the patient and I are happy to walk off in our separate directions and carry on with our lives. Andrew. Um, I think just picking up what George on what George has said, which is so important, uh, it's about resolving, uh, not winning. And it's about resolving loss because we all go through loss. The patient's going through loss. The practitioner's going through loss. And so an understanding of the four phases of change with loss that we have to recognize loss. We then try and prevent loss. We then try and recover loss. And then we have to let go of loss. And the stepping stones to growth that occur during these, the shock and denial that happen as we recognize loss, the anger and the guilt that may happen as we're trying to prevent the loss, as we try and control the situation. And that's where complaints come from. They don't come in pre-contemplation. 
expression they come in the in the state of anger and guilt recovering loss when there's bargaining and bargaining can be either assertive or it can be aggressive or it can be passive aggressive uh, and the other phase that happens in recovery of losses is, is the flat state of low energy of depression and then finally um, the letting go of acceptance uh, and these may sound like kubler ross's phases of grief but they're actually elaborated into the stepping stones of growth by uh, a system called emotional logic which uh, i highly recommend as as a way of looking at at, at growth and and loss both the patient and the practitioner are going through all these phases uh, as a complaint unfolds and as practitioners in the first place our challenge is if we can resolve at a local level in either on a one-to-one with the patient or with our practice managers and others is to manage that process at at the local level um, and, and when we fortunately have great defense societies and support, then that is still the process that is happening, irrespective of the management of the facts. Because as George says, we we want a patient who has closure. We don't want one who has an open wound or a sore that can continually be um, um, irritated. Yeah. And it's, it's just learning to take this unpersonally it's unpersonally a word it's depersonalizing so you would never you would never take it personally if a angry patient walked into the surgery and bopped a receptionist on the nose right you wouldn't go oh i'm such a bad human being this is awful you know it, it's a terrible thing to happen that patient is angry they've taken out in a physically violent way and you would deal with that physical violence and it's completely unacceptable but if the patient isn't a physically violent person but they are then going to use that anger and take that out as a complaint we then take that as a we then take it very very personally and sometimes like you said andrew just um seeing what is going on under the surface and recognizing that they are angry for all sorts of reasons they may have had a loss there may be other stuff going on yes it's directed at you but I guess like you said that is an occupational hazard it's part of your job as a health professional it's part of your professional role sometimes to absorb that anger in the form of complaints now I don't like saying that would you agree that that's true Sam or not Uh, it does come with the territory sadly and patients, of course, have a right to complain. I think one of the one of the helpful things to um, let go of how it feels personally for you is time. That if you give yourself time to work it through, rather than responding immediately when the emotions are really high, I think that's really helpful. And so often, what we do, or what I do with my members, is to talk them through it. And then as as they understand, as they talk it through, as they share it with their family and their friends and their co-workers, they begin to be able to say, ah, so this is actually not my issue. This is actually perhaps an issue for the complainant uh, and to be able to see it from a better perspective. And I think it's it's simply time and process that lets us let go of that, that personal um, offence that we take when people make these vexatious complaints. Sarah? Yeah, I think that's so po- that's important. We talked in some of the earlier episodes about being kind to yourself. And I think what Sam and, and Andrew have said around, you know, the, recognizing the process. And I suppose the time that it takes to work through that is part of being kind to yourself. But also both, I think everyone has said about how to reframe the complaint. So rather than taking it personally, rather than feeling you've got to win that, you know, seeing it differently. And you've just said, Sam, you're being able to see it from a different perspective. And that is often the key, isn't it? 
to, to be in a better position to then process this and to get out of that mindset of having to defend yourself and prove yourself and win something, but instead to be able to see this as an opportunity for, I suppose, for growth, although that's very difficult to see in the moment, I think. It's only often afterwards that you can look back and see how you, what you learned from it and how that was helpful, perhaps for you, but also for other people who can learn from that same experience. You know, a lot of what we've learned in medicine and dentistry, I'm sure, has been because we've learned from errors that have happened or mistakes that have come up that we've all sort of taken that learning and made changes as a result. But I think it's that shift in mindset, isn't it, from I must win this, I must prove myself, and um, how dare the patients say that about me, which isn't often a normal reaction, to actually coming to a point where we can see it differently and either see it from their perspective. And that doesn't mean that they're always right or that we, you know, we are a terrible person for what's happened, but just being able to see it from that angle can help us, um, I think, shift what we're wanting. I really like that um, whole concept of being able to see what's behind um, their behaviour. I, I often say to people, you know, well, what's, what's going on for them? What's behind that? And not taking things at face value always. And, and because not everybody has got the communication skills to be able to manage themselves in a moment when they're upset and angry. So um, you know, the patient is expressing it and trying to show you how they feel. Perhaps they haven't got the articulation or, or they're too upset to be able to articulate in that moment understandably. In a, in a way that would be easier to hear so it's trying to see past that isn't it and going what are they trying to say what's going on for them what are they wanting and I think when someone's angry they often need to hear you know I can see how angry you are and someone said to me that it's often helpful to say and you're probably worried as well so you're acknowledging that they're angry and also there's likely to be anxiety behind that and and you're naming their emotions and that can often help to you know just to for them to feel okay you've got it and they don't they need to keep on showing you how they feel um, because you've, you've heard and you've understood. Um, I think that at the end of the day, no matter how hard we try to resolve matters, no matter how um, good we are at reframing, how good we are at understanding where the patients come from, there are some patients or some complainants who will never be satisfied. And so I think we need to recognise that sometimes you just need to agree to disagree. And at some stage, that complainant, it's, it has to peter out, it has to stop. Um, but there are sometimes we will not find resolution and not to feel bad if that's the case. It is just the way it is. Thank you. Um, sometimes uh, in my work at the CCG, where I also deal with complaints at times, the personal meeting is useful. And I don't necessarily mean the personal meeting between the practitioner and the patient, um, because sometimes, and we've talked a little bit about vexatious, um, people have very strong feelings and they want to target those feelings. And it's inappropriate that that should be done in the personal situation. Um, sometimes it is appropriate, of course, for for the practitioner to, to meet uh, to meet the patient. But um, we've we we have facilitated meetings where I will chair and we will have our complaints team and, and the patient and we will try and go through all the facts and the story and, and explain um, and people want to be heard and they do want to be able to tell their story maybe to vent their anger and I'm quite happy for people to vent anger in a situation where I'm controlling the space um, and paper and emails don't always allow that to happen. And so there is something about the personal contact and the personal relationship and sometimes the face-to-face, -face, which in these days could be remote rather than actually in the same room, uh, which, which allows people to tell their story. Because we've talked about vexatious complainants, but the majority of complainants just want to know what happened and want to know an answer and may want an apology as well. 
Yeah, thank you. So I'd like to move on just to talk about complaints in COVID, because I think we, we talked about some malicious complaints. We talked about what's behind the thing that's that's happening. And we have seen complaints going up in in this sort of post-pandemic or, or the end of the well, end of pandemic. But you know, as we come out of lockdown, as as things have opened up, there've been many, many more complaints about really little trivial things. And and I've, you know, spoken to lots of people that are getting really very angry about all these complaints have been put in you know patients complaining that they can't get an appointment even though they were offered one you know the day after they phoned up you know so being completely unreasonable and I guess sort of taking a step back you can see that the well the whole of the world has had a dreadful time and everyone's anxious and worried and there's a lot of a lot of loss around there's a lot of grief around and you can see how that could well be behind um, some of the complaints that are coming in, as well as a lot of health anxiety about worried they're not going to be seen when they need to be seen. But that's turning into complaints. So is it right that we always deal with these sort of COVID complaints in the same way? Or do we try and minimise them? Or, you know, what would you advise, ha- advice would you have for practitioners specifically with these sort of niggly COVID sort of non-complaints or when they're complaining about something they really shouldn't be complaining about? George, would you have any suggestions for people? Yeah, I think I think first and foremost, um, to, your, to your initial question, yes, I think you probably have to deal with them as you would for any other complaint. And although it might to you be trivial and you might think, well, it's it's an unavoidable uh, effect of the, the pandemic. Yes, I think you should still follow the process. You should still do all the good things that we've spoken about, about listening to the patient, acknowledging their, their concerns and, and apologising and so forth. But, but yeah, the pandemic has given us a really unusual situation where if you if you take dentistry, we've seen a number of complaints arise out of the first wave where practices were told to close and patients are unhappy that they couldn't be seen. Now, that to me is really an open and shut case. You know, we were doing exactly as we were told uh, by the government at that time. And there isn't a lot that we can do about it. So I, I think deal with them in the usual way but you you sometimes you know we've, we've spoken about you know portioning blame and and so forth don't be afraid to just be a little bit more robust in your response with the patient sometimes and and you state it how it is and and once you've given that explanation you know we were following guidelines this happened because of these reasons and you can you can you know acknowledge where there is some learning to have taken place perhaps you didn't communicate the closure as well as you could have done to patients or you didn't put in uh, sufficient you know uh, means for the patient to contact you for for telephone advice there's always some learning in the complaint there and i think if you can add some of that into the mix for patients then then that goes a long way to helping to resolve the situation as well but yeah it's it gosh hasn't it been a tough year for for healthcare providers and for patients too and you know we need to recognize that i think and and sometimes that that parent whose you know child is sick at half past five on a friday evening that's just at their breaking point you know maybe you get the brunt of it separating that personal out from the the problem can be very helpful i i i think particularly where covid complaints are concerned there there is a real benefit and it's not something we've really touched on uh, today so far in in sharing with the team and sharing that learning with the team. And what I would say is, particularly if you're getting a lot of similar complaints, sit around a table, get everyone around the table in the practice and in the, in the hospital team and talk about 
how you can deal with these in a consistent manner, because there will be some common themes. So if you're getting, you know, a number of complaints about uh, difficulty accessing care or a number of complaints about a delay in diagnosis, you can come up with a strategy on how you're going to almost fast track those complaints. So you can, you can, you know, you've got your unusual outliers that will need a little bit more careful thought. But if you've got a, a, a patient that says, you know, I couldn't get a GP appointment at four o'clock on a Thursday, you can come up with a pretty robust, well-considered, standardised response with a personal touch, of course, that will just help streamline that because, you know, we've all got enough work to do without having to deal with the burden of all of these complaints as well. So I think just sometimes sharing that learning in the team, sharing the burden uh, can be re- re- really helpful. And and just a, a final point, Rachel, if I may, we, we find actually it, where I work, some of the more junior members of the team have a real talent for de-escalating complaints. So we sometimes think it's got to be the most senior person in the team that deals with these things. And, and yes, you need that oversight, but don't be afraid to, to actually search out that talent because we can talk about the tips and the strategies. But I do think some people have more of a natural flair for, for that separating out the remaining objective, the, the calm tone that, that Andrew did so well uh, uh, before. You know, I am one of these natural people that, that does get a bit agitated if you're angry and loud with me I'll you know risk getting angry and loud with you so I can see those in the team that are really good at de-escalating so they will be the the first port of call with the patient that's complaining and and often that goes a long way to helping to nip things in the bud. I like that idea of sort of actually nominating one person. Actually, you're the person that's going to deal with all of this. And obviously, you give them the appropriate support and stuff. But rather than everybody having to deal with all of these little niggly complaints, if you give someone the time, the training, you get together, you agree what you're going to say. And that person's really good at it and might actually really enjoy trying to resolve things. That takes some of the pressure off off the rest of the team. Is, is that something that, that other people would advise as well? Yeah, I think that's a really, really helpful way of looking at it, isn't it? Actually, utilise people's um, skills and talents, and but also, and also having that team approach is so helpful because it does take its toll on the team if there's lots of complaints coming through, and therefore getting together as a team, sharing the experience. And, but moving forward, okay, so what are we going to do about this? So not just, I mean, obviously it's understandable to have a bit of a, oh my goodness, this is awful. Why is all this happening? And I'm sure there's been a lot of that having to go on in terms of that sort of peer support. But then, okay, so what are we going to do about this in our team? How are we going to best respond to these these situations? Um, and how, um, who is, is the best person to, to manage that? And I think that's the way of looking at it really, isn't it? As a team, how are we going to tackle this together? Then you don't feel like you're on your own. And I think that's really important. Um, just to give an overview if I may on the epidemic of complaints I work for a a couple of organizations where we've seen more complaints in the last six months than we've seen in several years society has been going through great loss and the reactions are autonomic nervous system freeze and we have been frozen in fear um, for a year of lockdown and as we come out of fear we we want to try and recover the loss and so this recovery of loss the anger and the guilt is being targeted and wherever we've experienced the loss in our life 
um, whether that's being unable to see friends and family, being unable to move freely around the country, being unable to go abroad, being unable to connect with people. Um, we still have those feelings inside churning around, and it may well get um, actually targeted into something that actually seems quite trivial, such as being unable to get the appointment on the Thursday afternoon at four o'clock as opposed to, to Wednesday. But they are human beings with feelings, and this is society, and this is what everybody's going through. I fully agree with them. With George, Sarah, and Sam, that we have a, we always need a a, a, a a professional response because there's a person behind it. But we also have to under, have the understanding that this is what society is going through at the moment, uh, these times of of pandemic and people adjusting to change and loss. Yeah, totally. So we're very nearly out of time, but I just have one question to finish off with, if that's okay. And this is about if you're supervising someone else who has a complaint, because many of our listeners are trainers, they're educational supervisors, um, they might be training program directors, or they might just be, you know, responsible for some juniors in the team. And it's really hard to have a conversation with a trainee who's received a complaint because you know when you're very junior you do take it incredibly personally it might be the first time they've ever they've ever had a complaint it might be they might feel like the world is coming to an end they may feel like that because you're their supervisor that's going to reflect badly on them in terms of their training portfolio and and things like that so how would you um suggest that they approach you know having a conversation about this with them sam what would you suggest yeah I regularly see that um, our members can react in one of two extremes, the whole anger or the fall on your sword. And unfortunately, neither tends to be particularly helpful. But as a supervisor, what I would suggest is that, you know, you recognise that the person in front of you is struggling to cope. And what they need is actually reassurance to know that you are with them, to know that you're supportive of them. And um, so I would start with just acknowledging the feelings that they have and why it is they're feeling like that. And so they can feel heard. I think it's really helpful too for them to know that their reaction is really common, that a lot of their colleagues would react in exactly the same way. So it helps them to feel like, oh, my colleagues do get complaints and they react in the same way as me and that I'm normal. And then I would suggest that you try and put the complaint into its context when you get a complaint, it's, it can feel overwhelming and most doctors will go to that place of, gosh, I must be a terrible doctor. I'm no good at what I do or a dentist would feel that way too. And um, but, but in the reality, it might actually only be a minor complaint. So often what I would do is advise around the seriousness. You know, is this a serious complaint or do I actually think it's something minor and therefore I can reassure them that they don't, they don't need to be overly worried. And I think that once, um, and even if it is a serious complaint, you think, gosh, there is quite a lot of vulnerability here. I often reassure them that, one, I'm going to walk through the problem with them every step of the way. That often once we know what the facts are, then uh, you can actually feel better because you feel more in control. And also, I let people know this is a possible process ahead of you so that they're not left thinking, gosh, I'm going to be struck off because that's often what doctors feel. I'm not going to be able to practice anymore. And so once I've gone through that, then often um, I set them off doing a task, you know, find out what the 
um, what the facts are and begin to investigate. And I think it it means that they can redirect their energy into doing something that's constructive and positive. Thank you. Sarah? Yeah, I think what's really helpful to think about when you're the educational supervisor or the trainer is going back to when I was in that situation, what would I have needed from my supervisor or trainer? And then with all the learning that you have as your, in your experience, how can you take that learning into then the way that you approach it? So I agree with everything that Sam said. And the three sort of words I would think about is I'm going to approach this to create a safe, supportive space. So it's about creating psychological safety so that the trainee feels that they can open up and be honest with you. And often you do that by reassurance, but also by being vulnerable yourself, as Sam said, normalising the fact that you've had errors and made mistakes as well and, and you understand how they feel. But that support to show that you're alongside them, but that space for them to process what they're going through. So I think if you approach it in that way, thinking, what would I have needed when I was a trainee? What do they need from me? And creating that safe, supportive space. For me, that would, that would go a long way. Mm, Andrew. Um, doctors reflect, dentists reflect, as professionals all, we all reflect. Actually, sometimes we ruminate rather than reflect. We don't give ourselves closure. So I agree entirely with what, uh, what Sam and Sarah are saying. Take it seriously as a supervisor. Make time. Help th- your colleague, your, your trainee, your, the person you're supporting, help them know that you have got their back and support, support, support. And you understand the process more than they do. You've got a, a much longer perspective. And remember that most doctors, most dentists, most professionals actually suffer from the imposter syndrome as well. And you sort of have to name these uh, as you're helping support the person. Because if you name them, um, you're taking these these hidden tigers, these 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 fears that are in the cupboard, you're able to expose them and show them as part of what we feel but not really what's the facts of how we are and how we are as professionals george does this work for dentists as well yeah i think i think all all good points made and uh, i i I think look they need to be in the right time and space to to have that conversation first and foremost and if the the complaint has just come in you know i i used to be an educational supervisor myself and i'd want to get right to the bottom of it straight away you know i'd i'd have a gap now i've got an hour's time let's deal with this now so i can get it off my plate but actually that's sometimes the the worst thing you can do for the person that's received the complaint because you know they want to go and have a have a think about it and reflect so the time and space so that you're doing it at a you know a, a suitable moment for the person that's received it asking what their concerns are i think is a great shout because actually they might be most upset or angry or or anxious about your perception of them and how it is going to change how you view them which leads me on to my third point and and the best trick i ever found when i was supervising someone that had a complaint is tell them about a complaint i've received we've all had them so actually drop down that you know just just lower that um, barrier of i i am perfect and i can't make mistakes tell them about a complaint that you had um in your career maybe even one that you had last week um as a consultant and you'll be surprised how much that breaks down those barriers to the relationship and actually makes you seem a little bit more human and then you've got the training that things are oh, well actually if if you did that actually what i did wasn't so bad and maybe there is an opportunity here to to learn from this and and grow as a professional and the future isn't as bleak as it looked five minutes ago 
think that's that's so true and, and that's what Sarah was talking about with the vulnerability you know if you share stuff that that you've gone through then absolutely they'll go okay well gosh if if you can make a mistake then that then I, then I can make a mistake is what our our colleague Dr Annalene Weston was saying right in episode one you know that she teaches her dental students to say at university I am going to make mistakes and some of them are going to be serious and just sort of learning that right from the get-go but that means that you need to admit and talk about it and I guess what you need to be doing as a practice or wherever you work is before your trainee gets complaints you all are sharing the complaints that you've had so it becomes a a normal thing that you talk about and you share and so when you they do get that complaint it's not like this massive bombshell of oh my goodness this is this has happened it's like okay well okay this is the first one it's come along I was almost supposed to be expecting this really what do you think, Andrew? Um, completely agree. Um, nothing to add to that. That's you, You've put it so nicely. Thank you very much. And George, as you were speaking as well, when you're saying you actually find out there the trainees' concerns, that we have that, that lovely phrase, ICE, don't we, that, that trainees learn how to find out their, uh, their patients' ideas, concerns and expectations. But actually in all of these complaints, we need to be finding out what our trainees, what are their ideas, concerns and expectations, what are the patients' ideas, concerns and expectations about the complaint. And then, then that's going to stand you in, in pretty good stead. So I think we're at the end of our time. I'm going to go round and ask you just for one top tip, each of you. Um, for people when what what would you like people to go away with um, really really knowing when it comes to managing themselves or dealing with complaints give me a wave whoever's got the first tip and I'll come to you first George I'll get in first before others steal my idea Rachel um, I I think um, and by the way thank you for having me along today it's been a real pleasure Um, don't bury your head in the sand No one ever resolved a complaint from burying their head in the sand. You're not alone in this. Speak to your colleagues, take advice. It it wouldn't be right if coming from an indemnity provider, I didn't say pick up the phone to your indemnity provider. We're here to help. You know, we've all been there. Um, And, and, you know, you've got colleagues that you will be surprised how much they fall over themselves to help you uh, when you find yourself in this position. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, it's been a privilege to be with uh, everyone today. Just two words, stay calm. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. I think asking yourself, you know, what's behind the situation, both for yourself and for the other person, is often a really helpful way just to reframe it, um, along with everything else that everyone said. And thanks again for having me on the panel today. Thank you. And last but very not least, um, Sam. Probably I would say you will get through it. I think it can feel at the beginning of the of the process, it can feel like this huge mountain, but you will get through it. And the overwhelming majority of doctors and dentists, I'm sure, uh, go on to have a very successful career and to look at it from that wider perspective of life. So uh, thank you very much for having me, Rachel. It's been a real pleasure to be on the panel with you all. Great. So it will pass whatever it is. So thank you, guys. That was absolutely brilliant. I think we could probably talk for another another couple of hours about that. So um, it's just been really um, good to have you here. Thank you so much for giving up your time. Just to say to listeners, if you have any further questions or anything, do do submit them. I'm sure um, we can get people back on podcasts for, for future episodes because this is a conversation that I think we need to keep on having about complaints. I don't think we talk about them enough and I think we need to normalise them. We need to manage 
manage ourselves better when, when we get them and, and just realise it is part of our professional responsibility. So thank you for listening. Do get in touch and do remember that if you are struggling with any of this, please contact um, with your own GP, contact practitioner health, contact your employee assistance programme, speak to colleagues, get, get some help. Don't suffer alone. And of course, all the medical defence organisations are there to support you. They're there to offer advice and you know, contact them, I guess, soon, sooner rather than later. Is that what you'd say, guys? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Great. So thanks for being here and we'll speak soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please share it with your friends and colleagues. Please subscribe to my You Are Not A Frog email list and subscribe to the podcast. And if you have enjoyed it, then please leave me a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. So keep well, everyone. You're doing a great job. You got this.